Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people and places, we are back with what's going to be a very, very fun episode. I want to welcome to the show, Diane Gohoffer. Diane, how are you? Doing great. And you, sir? I can't complain. Uh, we had some technical difficulties before we jumped on, but now that those are behind us, excited to dive into uh, to the conversation. For those who didn't hear it yet, Diane, you can hear, is from the great state of Texas. I spent some some time down there, Diane, and excited to dig into all of your experience. So the way we start the show is really a getting to know you and your career path. Give us a bit of the elevator pitch of who you are today, what you do, what your role is, and then we'll go back and, and take a look at the journey that led you there. Sure, sure. I, um, I run a small engineering consulting business today. And have a small staff, about 10. We do inspection and quality, and we do some real estate support, mostly for public works projects. Here in Dallas is where a lot of it is, but we do things internationally too, reviews and stuff. When you say real estate, what does that mean? So with a lot of public agencies, transit as well as highway, there's a whole long list of rules that real estate acquisition has to do to make sure that they get their real estate funding. And so we help agencies with those rules and understanding. them. So like right-of-way acquisition as an example. Absolutely. Yes. Right-of-way utilities, anything that's in the right-of-way of a construction project. Awesome. I'm I'm excited to ask you a little bit about that. I don't I don't know if you do any Army Corps of Engineers work. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried to get in the door there, but I haven't yet. But there's right. a well, lot. We're going to combine forces and we're going to figure it out together after after this call because I I think and and somebody who's listening is going to call me and correct me that I'm wrong and they figured this all out. But the the Corps of Engineers got funded about $17 billion, I think it was $17.2 billion, in response to Harvey Irma Marie storm system that required all this infrastructure upgrade and all this resiliency and yada, yada, yada. But the public funding couldn't be deployed because the local partners were having issues with the right-of-way acquisitions for the projects that were execute, that were going to be executed. So I've got... Me and you are going to talk and somebody listening is going to, going to walk us right into the Corps of Engineers real estate office and we're going to be their solution. So All we'll start right, out with that, that joint venture pitch that doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> um, but talk to us. I mean, I understand you started the business in 2011. I did. Okay. I did. So talk to us about how you got into the industry and, and a bit of the journey on your way to starting the business. Sure. Well, it, it wasn't necessarily by choice. I never thought I'd have my own business. You okay. know, my whole career, people keep saying, you need to have your own business. You should think about having your own business. But I was happily working at Dallas Area Rapid Transit, and I loved working at DART. And 
I was overseeing the capital construction program there. And, you know, transit's amazing. And I think that every city, you know, needs transit. And so I loved working there and I loved working on the capital construction programs because they were major programs that had a lot of moving parts to them. And I enjoyed that. And so I was, I was at DART for over 25 years, starting with the consultant, working my way up um, through the agency to where I finally did see the um, capital construction program. And when I left there, we had just finished successfully the Green Line, which mm-hmm. is the billion dollar light rail. And it was um, the longest light rail built at one time. It was also made DART have the longest light rail system in the nation at the time. And so we were very proud of that program. And it was a great success. After we finished that, I had already gone through like three. I don't know if you're familiar with transit agencies, but they have big build outs. And then they have kind of a couple of years of downtime where they work on maintenance projects and facilities. Mm and things that the you know the public typically don't see. Well, this was the third this was the third ramp up. I was there at the very beginning when there weren't trains yet. In fact, cool story, the way I actually got started was I was the vice president of Society of Women Engineers, which is a great women engineering organization here, and they had a speaker come and she was the Uh, dartboard chair. And she talked about this vision because at the time, Dart was running these little buses with little ears. (laughs) They were like buses and cat buses. And, you know, that's the only way people got around is to hop on these little buses. It didn't seem very serious for a, you know, a town like Dallas. And I, Dallas really was wanting to change its image. This was back, you know, late seventies, early eighties. And so the folks in Dallas said, you know, you can't be an international city without transit, without some kind of a train system. And at the time, I think they were envisioned subway. And she talked to us all about this vision. And she had me sold when she said, and the first thing we're going to build is a tunnel to Neiman Marcus. And it's going (laughs) to be coated in gold and it's going to have butterflies. She sold me then. I was like, after the meeting, I said, how, how can I join up? What do I need to do? How can I join up? And sure enough, they, the position they had available, which I wouldn't have had a clue about, and I didn't have a clue about at the time, but it was a track alignment engineer. Okay. Now, you know what a track alignment engineer does? I do, but our, our audience <laughs> may not. Well, you know, you you draw lines and you draw circles and you connect them all together and have these nice little transition points. And it's basically geometry. And so I did that for a while. It's really important geometry because that train needs to keep on the track. I've, I've actually heard of projects where that alignment was off by like two inches and the cost of the change orders are like astronomical. Yes. Yes, uh, both so. in elevation and in you know the horizontal. Absolutely, you, it is critical, and it's really intense, especially if you're laying out a yard. Yeah. you know, a yard for trains. I mean, yeah, you can't be off. You can't be <laughs> off an eighth of an inch. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want that train to derail. And so, yeah, it was intense. 
but they decided I was just, I was too noisy, too bossy. So they couldn't, they couldn't keep me in a back room just drawing, you know? And so very quickly they made me an assistant project manager. And so I oversaw some of the design stuff for the downtown and the, the mall and the um, subway, the big first subway piece that Dart actually ended up doing eventually. And then, you know, as all things come and go with consultants, they decided that, you know, this consultant wasn't a good fit and the funding, Dallas was having a hard time with the funding at the time. And so there was a referendum and Dart lost that referendum. So they had to get rid of the big consultant, but they decided to keep me on, which I was really thankful for. And I was doing a lot of scheduling then. Okay. And so they took me as a scheduler and brought me on to help them keep moving with the program um, and that scheduling piece of the program. So I actually transferred to DART as a scheduler. And from there, I I really wanted to be out in the field. I I really loved construction. I went to school for a civil engineering degree from Texas A&M. And there I studied a lot of construction management. I really enjoyed seeing how these projects were built. And I always wanted to, you know, drive across that bridge that I built. That was always my dream growing up. And so I pushed until they finally did let me out in the field. And I was out in the field for a number of years as an office engineer, as an inspector, as a field engineer, as a construction manager, and eventually got to where I was overseeing the whole capital construction program at DART, which was just thrilling and loved it to death, loved working there to death. But as I said, these things cycle. So you got these periods of a lot of building, periods of not so much building. And we reached that in 2011 as we were completing this big billion dollar project. And I was giving a choice. It was basically, you can do the streetcars. we got some streetcars coming up, which wasn't a very big project. I want to say it was a 20 or $30 million project. Or you've been here a long time. You've got a pretty nice reduction in force package. And, you know, you could just go on and do some other things and take your reduction in force package. And at the time, you know, I never thought about starting my own company. But, you know, I had reached a point. um, I had hit the ceiling. I was not going to go any further at that point with DART. And so it was a tough decision, but I took the package and ran. And Mm. I'm so glad I did because that package gave me enough to start the business. It was, you know, basically a good solid six month package. And it took me six months. You know, I mean, it took me six months to get clients, to to start generating the business and to start eating things besides cans of beans. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, my kids were, they were in high school, which was good and bad because they were pretty independent, which was good, but it was bad too, because college you know, it was right around the was looming. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so that was a little bit tricky, but we made it through and I'm so glad I did because really having my own company has allowed me to do more. It's allowed me to do more with, you know, women in transportation and engineering, allowed me to do more with um, my personal life. It's also allowed me to do more. I'm now the president elect of an organization called Dispute Resolution Board Foundation. So what it does is it works internationally to help avoid disputes 
and resolves disputes internationally. And it's a great organization. And it's really set up because when you start these big construction projects, you know, you always start these projects and you think nothing's going to happen. Love the contractor. It's a great owner. We're going to, we're going to get along great. And, you know, the first couple of months, everything goes good. You know, then maybe after six months, after a year, the right of way isn't purchased or the utilities aren't going as smoothly as they should have been going, or there's a differing site condition. And all of a sudden, you know, you start having some problems that, you know, having a board or it's basically a three person kind of neutral panel that you can bounce things off of, bounce ideas off this and help guide a team that's independent, not part of the owner, not part of the contractor, although both agree to this panel and the members of this panel. And the panel are members that are seasoned. They've been doing it, you know, 25, 35, 45, sometimes 50 years and are experts in the industry. So they really know what's going on and what to expect. So, you know, they kind of help guide the owner, you know, making sure that the owner is, you know, fairness and real, as well as the contractor, making sure that the contractor's not requesting things that it shouldn't be questing and, and really helping to avoid these kind of things that come up, the disputes. And so that's a huge, a huge deal. And it's huge internationally because these projects now, I mean, I thought a billion dollars was a lot. Yeah. I mean, now a billion dollars is kind of the normal thing. You know, a five-year billion-dollar contract, a five-year, you know, two billion, three billion. You know, so all of a sudden, you're talking about a lot of time and a lot of money, and relationships break down. Yeah, especially in a high-charged environment like that when you've For got a sure. lot. Of- there's there's risk. It's you know, yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, yes. that's re- real risk. And the um, personalities in a field office are <laughs> You know, I mean, they, yeah, you know, they're used to making things happen. That's they're, right. You know, and it's uh, frustrating for t- at times for them. So, so absolutely. Th- does any dispute stand out that you could give us some lessons learned? Oh, we had a, we had a fun, we had a fun dispute. And it was, this was one of the, my projects when I was at, at DART. And, you know, it all came down to, and this is why the, the DRB is so important. It all came down to seeing it in the field, mm-hmm. seeing what the complaint was in the field and taking a look at it, feeling the material, looking at the material. And, you know, at the time I was on the owner's side and the DRB said, yeah, you know, that material would have never held up. And so, you know, it was one that ruled in our favor. But, you know, it was it was interesting, though, because it all came down to seeing it. And these experts, they know what they're looking at. They, they can look at the lab reports, the material testing. They can look at, you know, the material and know yeah. that it would have worked. You know, they were wanting to use this material for, retain, you know, ret- retention walls. And, you know, initially we didn't like it because of the high sodium content which we thought would, you know, cause these early corrosion of, you know, the um, reinforced rebar, Mm. you know, in the wall, which when you deal with electrified trains, you know, that's a reality because you do have stray current and you want to make sure that you don't have early corrosion. So the soil content and having it low in sodium is is a huge deal. So I, 
I want to I want to highlight that as that's such a great so there's two pieces to this. It's that's such a great specific detail that nobody nobody thinks about, right? Nobody outside of, you know, the person in that job that has to, you know, weigh those risks and understand those risks and and what the life cycle cost is going to be to the public agency. And we always talk macroly about on the podcast, public infrastructure projects are complicated things. And like, yeah, people hear about them in the news when they go, you know, there's too much money being spent or the schedule's delayed or the Army Corps of Engineers screwed this up or we we hear about them from these global like, oh, big public spending. And we only hear about them when they go wrong. We don't appreciate everything that's going right, whether it's in construction or the maintenance phase that like keeps public transit going, keeps airports running. It, you know, we're, our industry is kind of the behind the scenes heroes that keep things moving. And I talk about it from the macro, but I, I really appreciate the level of specificity of like audience who may not be in the field, may not be in construction to understand, like these are the things that on a, on a specification of a construction project, What's the material? What is the public agency looking at? Why do these things go off the rails? Pun intended. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I really appreciate the detail because it's, it's not something that's talked about and not something that most people are going to you know, appreciate on a day-to-day -day basis. But when they're riding a train and they understand the safety and now they understand that there's an engineer that's worried about track alignment and not only an engineer worried about track alignment, but a project manager reviewing the spec and taking into consideration what the soil looks like and how that may impact the rebar, which at the end of the day is a public safety issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. So very... Like dirt, right? <laughs> say that again. Dirt looks like dirt. Rocks that's right. Like yeah, that's right. <laughs> What's the big deal? Just throw some rock in there. <laughs> yeah. So I I really appreciate that, and I appreciate the whole dispute resolution business right now because I think there's a major shift or or conversation happening in our industry right now about allocation of risk via contracts when. We've had labor issues, we've had inflation issues, we've had supply chain issues. And does the owner hold the bag? Does the general contractor hold the bag? Or how do we actually, as an industry, continue to move projects forward in the built environment? Are you seeing more flow to dispute resolution? Is is the dispute resolution I'm I'm sorry, I, I wrote it down, but the, the group, resolution board? Yes, dispute resolution. Okay. Are they taking kind of macro positions on on thought leadership around these risk ownership risk allocation issues yes yes and you know one of the things is, is we encourage owners to put a drb or sometimes if it's a small contract a dra a dispute resolution board which is typically three people or a dispute resolution advisor into the contract Okay. And this party starts at the beginning. So they're there at the beginning. The three party members, one is typically, well, there's a couple of different ways. We like it to be chosen as a pool. 
you know, basically these folks are trained. These folks know, let's say it's transit. These folks know transit. They know systems. They know civil. They know the things that typically happen in the transit community. And the two are pretty much selected. And then they propose a chair is a a good way of doing it. But all three members are basically proposed and approved by the owner and the contractor. And folks that are neutral, independent, but knowledgeable about the type of construction is what we've seen is is the best, the best boards that that mm-hmm. can put together. At the same time, sometimes it's helpful to have a construction attorney in the mix as well. But for the most part, the rulings are not based upon the law as much as they are based upon the contract. And so this board reviews the contract, knows the contract, and when issues come up, they address them based upon the contract language. Now, as you know, these contracts are huge. I mean, you're talking, you know, thousands of pages of specifications and thousands of pages of drawings. There's a lot there and a lot that can be missed or not seen. So when I talk about you know, the advisory role. It's more regarding when the contractor and owner are not seeing eye to eye on a change or um, an issue that comes up in the field. They then can present it to the panel or the board. They use interchangeable terminology as, you know, an issue, and they can have an informal resolution on that issue, or they can take it all the way to a formal resolution as well. But the bigger thing is, is, you know, when you're sitting in a room with three of your peers, it's much harder to BS your way through. (laughs) As you're looking, right, as you're looking across the table and you're looking at these three experienced professionals, it's, you, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to tell a, tell a tale yep. or if you tell a tale, you better come with some good evidence and some good backing. So we encourage, we encourage the owners to put in regular field office meetings to where this group comes to the field at least once a quarter, does a site visit of the things that are actively happening, kind of go through the rocks in the road, the issues. And we've seen Excellent success. A lot of the DOTs use um, DRBs now across the nation. Like I said, they're used internationally. The World Bank requires get their funding to use these DRBs. So it is, it's a major, it's, it's a major risk management philosophy. And so you, you, you have it all part of that mediation continuum. So you know, early on, you want the field to kind of resolve their own issues. But as those issues grow and can't, then you bring in the DRB to help resolution before you go on to those next steps of, you know, mediation and arbitration and administrative law judges and lawsuits. And it really prevents many issues from ever going that far, which is huge because, you know, a lawsuit is not good for the owner. And it's, it's certainly it's not good not. for anybody, right? It's the public project stops, right? And everybody goes to their corner. So now the the infrastructure that we're building or the public project that is being stewarded 
just went to the courts and now as the saying goes, the lawyers win and nobody else. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, public images is bad. You know, when you have lawsuits, it's always easy to say, oh, you know, they were at fault. They did these terrible things. And, you know, everybody, like you said, gets stoned to their own corners. Yeah. That's good. You know, it, I brought, um, when I was at DART, DRBs were just starting to come about. And they came about in the tunnel industry. And at the time before they came out, we were seeing lawsuits. And the hardest thing about these is nobody wins. You know, you know, we were winning technically, but the contractors wouldn't come back. You Mm. know, it's like, yeah, we won that game, but then you didn't have anybody bid on your work anymore. Yeah, And so, you know, it's like, oops, maybe, maybe we do need to think about how to be a more fair owner. And when times are tough and there's not a lot of work, you can get contractors. But like now, there's a lot of a lot of building going on and you want to make sure you retain the best folks to build your project. That's such and, a good point so. that I think a lot of owners and maybe I will say young owners because I was probably one of them as a resident engineer, like, you know, this contractor is not going to, you know, push us around, blah, blah, blah. They have to make a fair profit. They have to be able to execute or you do start to scare away your contractor pool and the public sector doesn't have that capacity standing by to go build it on our own. It it needs the private sector to, to execute projects. So I think that's a really, a really great lesson to share is that it it's, the the dispute resolution, the partnering, the negotiating, it's really having a respect for both parties' mission on the public sector. It's, you know, it's steward stewarding the public investment in that project, quality control, safety control, oversight, fiscal responsibility. And on the private sector, it's to execute the project that they signed up for fairly within specs, quality, et cetera. I mean the CM advisor, QAQC, inspector industry, wouldn't exist if that was an easy, you know, if that was an easy relationship and went right every time. But it it is, you know, and one of our goals is for both sides to have an appreciation for the other. It's not, it's not a, I win, you lose world. It's a win-win world. And, you know, getting it right out of the gates at the contract period is the best place for it to happen. Settling in the field is the next place. And it sounds like before you, before you escalate the, the D DRB, I'm, I'm going to get that right. Is, right. is maybe DRB, the next place. Resolution boards. You know, one of the things, and I always tell new people this too, you know, you can, you can walk away from the job and it can be a failure and that'll stick with you for a very long time. And it's never very pleasant. Or you can walk away with the project being a success. And you do. You do that by keeping the conversation going, making sure that you are partnering. And, and, you know, if there's rocks in the road, if there's issues coming up, you know, working through the issues. And as an owner, you know, sometimes owners get blinded and they think, oh, the contractor's just wanting more money, just wanting more money. And oftentimes it's not a money. It's Having the ability to go do a piece of work, having the ability to get this crew in before the summer or before the winter storms. 
take right. place because they know when the winter storms take place, you know, all the big power guys are going to go to wherever that storm is. And so, you know, having an appreciation and an understanding for the other side's risk. Yeah. You know, where that all works together, I think, is an important part. So having experienced folks on your projects and looking in your projects from the outside, I think, is hugely helpful. Such a great point. You've talked about some lessons learned and and your career and navigation. Is there any other leadership lesson that kind of sticks with you that's been useful in your career path? You know, I think it's the importance of being flexible and present. You know, I, you know, when I started out, I had no idea this would be the path that I would take. I always knew I'd be in construction. I always wanted to be, you know, construction manager and in construction. But you never know who you might meet that gives you that idea that you would have never thought of otherwise, Mm. whether it's reading a book or a newspaper, or in my case, you know, it was, you know, that meeting with Alan Harrison, which all of a sudden is like, oh my gosh, trains. I didn't know anything about trains. You know, I traveled, you know, we were avid travelers when I was a kid. And I can thank my parents for that because they love traveling the world. And so, you know, being on the subway in London or in New York City, I mean, that was huge. But to think that we could have something like that in Dallas. And I think that really, that is something is you're, if you're looking at the future, you always got to keep your mind open to it may not go the way you think it's going to go, but you got to figure out what's the next step. You right. know, where do we go from here? You know, running out of projects at dark, you know, and, and, and hitting the ceiling. It's kind of like, okay, what's the next step? Where do I go from here? And it's what's, not, what's the next tunnel to Neiman Marcus? There you go. There <laughs> you go. That's exactly it. You always have to be looking at, well, how can we make the best of this? And I'm a big proponent of, looking forward, not back. Oh, amen to that. And, and maintaining a positive spirit and optimistic outlook, it sounds like. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. You mentioned books. Any yes. favorite books? Most recommended book? I am. I'm an avid reader. I yeah, am. I an like avid. that. I I love reading. I read anything I can get my hands on. But I don't have a favorite. I've got lots and lots of favorites. And I think a good book to me is something that makes me see the world a little differently, you know, teaches me something, you know, when I put it down, you know, a bad book, I I walk away and I'm like, oh my God, I just wasted a bunch of time. There was nothing there. (laughs) But a good book, you leave it and you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that before. Anyone that sticks out as like a most recent perspective shifter? Well, I got to say, I just read The Rent Collector. Okay. By Cameron Steve Wright. And this isn't a business book. It is a book really about the importance of literature. And it goes without saying that, you know, you you read 
to make you more open to things and ideas and to become more innovative. And this story, it centers around a real story in Cambodia. And these people were living on a trash dump. And that's how they made their living. They would gather trash, you know, cans and whatever and turn it in. And that was how they paid for their meal that day. And they couldn't read. Many of them couldn't read. Wow. And you know, you never think about that, but just think about if you couldn't read, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't taught to read and how limiting this world would be. And, you know, being able to read, being able to look at the internet, being able to, you know, comprehend good literature, I think is important. I I think that is so important for people to have that background and basis to Try to better understand. It kind of goes with that collaboration we were talking about earlier in the dispute resolution. Yeah. You have to be able to look at the whole picture and both sides of the issue, you know, and that education is what gets you there. So that book was powerful. And I, I think it is kind of actually one they recommend in, you know, a lot of schools and stuff. And it's, it's a powerful book in that it really teaches you that the importance of reading and learning. It's a new one for me. And, and just as you're talking about it, the, the appreciation I just, you know, kind of regained for being able to read. And like, it, it's, thank you for that. How about favorite quotes? Oh, favorite. I've got a great favorite quote. Quality can't be inspected in. Quality must be built in. And that's been my favorite for a long time because, you know, since we do a lot of quality and quality management, in my business. That's one of the things I always tell, you know, I tell the folks is, you know, don't go out there and wait until somebody does it wrong and say, oh, you know, you did that wrong. You're going to have to take it out. (laughs) You know, it's again, better to be upfront. Let people know what the expectations are. Here's the contract. This is what's required. Do you have all these things? Do you have a backup if that doesn't, you know, if you don't have those things? And again, be proactive, you know, up front and build in that quality and not just, you know, create a bunch of paperwork after the fact that you've got to chase down on, okay, is it fixed now? Is it fixed? So, yeah, that's a huge thing. And that's a huge thing that I always am a proponent to um, young inspectors and young That's such folks. a good quote. I, I have not heard it before. Certainly appreciate it. Yeah. It's, and, and it goes in line with the whole partnering approach to building, right? There's so many inspectors, CMs, you know, owners, reps that think their job is to aha after the fact when it's actually to help avoid and navigate the risks before, in my opinion. The owner's rep is there to partner, to help that partnership work between the owner and the, and the builder. And that's the spirit of that quote. So. Absolutely. I had this safety guide and he really taught me a lot. You know, I'd always known safety guys and, you know, some of these safety guys would walk on the site and everybody would stop working because they would be so frightened that, Oh my gosh, they're going to shut me down. You know, I don't have, I have a frayed cord. I have whatever, but you know, I had this safety guy that worked for me and he was everybody's friend, everybody's (laughs) friend. And you know what ended up happening? People wouldn't run when he came on the job. And the next thing you knew, they were like, hey, you know, John, 
this guy, he's not tied off over here. We're kind of concerned about him. (laughs) (laughs) And so again, he could be proactive, right? You know, make sure that he'd get to the side and make sure the guys were, you know, you know, where's your rope, you know, (laughs) and yeah, it's just hanging over there. You just can't throw it over the roof, you know, to the other side, you got to tie it to something. And again, it was that whole proactive approach. And he taught me that he said, you know, I don't want to be the guy everybody's running from because all the work stops. I want to be the guy that people come to and know I'm there to keep the job safe. Yeah. I love that because, and, and to your point, if, if you start right, you stay right. And every project site, every project team takes on a culture. And if it's a production speed focused, it's not a quality and safety focus. But if you get those things embedded from the beginning, it's a mindset and the culture of the team and, and you know, everybody's heard a safe site is a clean site is a safe site and a safe site is a, is a fast site, in my opinion. Absolutely. So if you embed those things early, you, you get it right. And it, you know, the team kind of proactively manages itself. Mm-hmm. What a great, great lesson learned. Last question, maybe, I think. If you could have dinner with three people, who would they be? Dead or alive? I have to, I have to go back to family. You know, my family has always been the ones that gave me the direction, gave me the encouragement. And it goes back to my grandmother and my mother and my father. They always, they always really instilled in me the importance of learning and an education. My grandmother had a six, she, she, you know, sixth grade education and she had to go and clean houses. And she always, you know, she said, yeah, if she had been able to go to college, she would have been an engineer. And I believe. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was the force. She was the force to say, you got to keep going. You got to keep going. And, you know, my mother, she went to college because, you know, my grandmother made her, but she got her MRS degree. (laughs) And so she dropped out of college, got married. That's what she did in the 50s. And she always wanted to go back. So she did go back and she became an accountant. And of course, my father, who was so focused on all of our educations and so encouraging, he was the one that was always, yeah, we're going to go in business together, you know, father and father and daughter. And I never thought I could quite do that. But the encouragement that he had in fact, when I did start my own uh, business, he was there helping me, you know, encouraging me and, and helping me put that together as well as my sister. And so I think really, if I could bring back my grandmother, my mother and my father again, just to have a day outside in beautiful fall weather, you know, planting pansies and just talking about life, that, that would be a great day for me. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, and to close us out, is there anything you would like to share with the audience or audiences, public and private sector, junior to senior professionals, AEC, we have a lot of veterans following us, anything that you would like to pass on and, and share with the uh, industry to, to maybe inspire a better industry? Well, I certainly want to thank you for having me and having this podcast, because I think this podcast in itself, inspiring people in places does a lot of that. I didn't talk much about much about WTS, um, which is a great cause for women engineers or women in transportation. That is one of the things I've been very involved with um, as well over the last 
30, 35 years is encouraging women to become part of women in transportation and men. It's a great place to meet transportation folks across the nation. And they have some of the best annual conferences and the best topics and the best websites that I've come across. And it's a great place um, to meet other folks that are in, you know, the same industry. One of the things, especially as an owner, it was very hard to meet and connect with a lot of other women engineers or other engineers in the field because we're always discouraged not to become friends with the contractor or Mm -hmm. consultants. And there's always this division between owners and, you know, the folks that, you know, kind of work for you as contractors and consultants. But Women in Transportation, WTS, has really been an organization that allows you to do that, you know, across the nation. And so that is one that I definitely would put a plug in because advancing women and transportation is needed. And it's needed because we've got we've got a lot of empty holes. We've got a lot of places that need bodies. And we women we agree. And workers and leaders and uh, your daughters need to have places. Amen. Places so absolutely. But uh, we'll um, make sure we put WTS in the show notes to highlight that. And and thank you for thank you for everything you do. Thank you for having a small business. Thank you for uh, giving people jobs and for being a part of the industry and the dispute resolution board. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us a little bit about your career path and your experiences. Well, thank you again for having me. This has been a, a, a true joy and I enjoyed listening to the podcast. It's just, it's, it is very inspirational. Thank you for that. Thank you, Diane. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.